be seated, but I do want to ask that you continue to bow your heads and uh, thank you, Jeffrey and the worship team for leading us in such a uh, wonderful time of worship. But let's just continue for a few seconds. Preparing our hearts to hear from the Lord. Father, we do worship you and we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to pay the price for our sins on the cross. We thank you that Lord Jesus, that you are alive and live again. You make intercession for us every day. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as Jeffrey said, do fill us up, Lord, with your spirit. And as we read your word, that it, your spirit would apply it to our hearts. Lord, I ask for revival, revival in my heart, revival in the hearts of the elders, in the lives of the deacons, small group leaders, teachers, in the lives of every member of this congregation, in the lives of those who just are visiting and hanging around. Lord, you do what you need to do in our hearts, in this church, in the days to come. We thank you for where we are now and where we're going. And help us to just put the past behind us and look forward to what you have in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16 in a few minutes. And we've seen in the first part of chapter 3 that Paul strongly emphasizes that no one has any reason to put confidence in the flesh. And we would talk about the self, works, position, power, influence, accomplishment, knowledge. He says, if anyone, if anyone could put confidence in anything, he could more than any person. Paul points out that uh, he, he was the best of the best, a, a faithful Jew, a stickler for the law, zealous, moralistic Pharisee. He had, as Matt put it a couple of weeks ago, a top-notch resume. But those same things from a, from a post-conversion point of view, from his post-conversion point of view, also made him the worst of the worst. All that legalism and harshness, uh, being a persecutor of the church, and, and as we, we know from other parts of Scripture, he was complicit in the murder of, of Stephen. And, and he called himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, the chief of sinners. He was the worst of the worst. All this, the good and the bad, he counted for loss. He counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, of knowing him and the power of his resurrection, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like Christ in his death, also that he may attain the resurrection from the dead. This brings us to our passage today in which Paul makes a, a clarification about what he just said in verses uh, 10 and 11, which offers a significant challenge and a great encouragement for us. 
In the first part of verse 12 there, we, we see that Paul gives us a reality check. He, he, he throws out a reality check to what he just said. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul has just expounded on the glory of knowing Christ fully to the point of being found in him and becoming like him in his death. He checks himself here in verse 12 because he doesn't want the Philippians to think he's made it. That he's somehow way ahead of them spiritually. And we'll see in a moment how he handles that. Related to obtaining this, the resurrection from the dead is perfection in Christ. Paul makes it clear that he has not obtained either the resurrection from the dead or perfection yet. Now, there's a very important tension to this reality check that we need to grasp and not forget what theologians call the already but not yet, an idea that we find throughout the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings. As believers, we are already in heavenly and eternal reality. We're saved, we're perfect in Christ, we're complete in Christ. That's a promise of God to those who are born again and which is guaranteed by the seal, the indwelling, the presence of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is referring to here is the earthly actual reality of the not yet, where we are now. He is not in this life, this side of the second coming. In his daily pilgrimage as a believer, he has not yet achieved human perfection. He is letting the Philippians know that he is still a fellow traveler sojourning through this life, step by step, becoming more like Jesus. But that's not a discouragement to him. And note what he says in the rest of, of verse 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained this, I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, first look at the, the foundation of Paul's hot pursuit. He presses on toward the goal not to gain a relationship with Christ, but because, he says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's working from the truth of his identity and security in Christ. He is not trying to achieve union with Christ, but is pressing forward from that union. And second, he, he repeats the reality check and explains the nature of this race, his race in life. He does not consider that he has made the goal of perfect humanity in Christ his own quite yet. So what does he do? One thing with two important elements. Forgetting what lies behind. Now, let's break that down a little bit. What, what is Paul forgetting? Uh, what lies behind that he wants to forget? Well, if we remember what he already pointed out to himself, about himself in verses three through six, what we already mentioned, he is putting behind him all that was the best in his resume and what was the worst in his actions as seen from that converted point of view. His high-minded legalism, his, his moralism, his zeal for the law, his education, his influence, his power, his murderous activity, all those things that made him the chief of sinners, all that was useless in making him right with God and Christ's own. It's all in the past. 
It's, it's useless. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. Now, the way Paul puts it here, the act of forgiving is something that, that he's in the process of doing. It's something that's ongoing. He's still working on it. Forgetting does not mean, as we all know, forgetting does not mean that the memory is obliterated. Rather, Paul means he won't let the past distract him, won't let it keep him from his goal. The, pop, the past does pop up every now and then, and he has to remember to forget it. Now, let's talk a little bit about, about us, about you and me. To be sure, Paul is not talking here primarily about past personal trauma. He's not talking about past broken relationships or past personal failures. That's not his primary point. He is not primarily making a psychological or therapeutic statement. He's talking about forgetting the things he was trying to do in order to be right with God. They just didn't work. But still, I think we can make application to the past junk, the life baggage that we all have to deal with every now and then. After all, much of what Paul was depending on to make him right with God was sinful and led to personal failure. Well, some of us sometimes have a hard time dealing with the past. Some of us may identify with, with Paul's claim of being a persecutor, of being the chief of sinners. We've done a lot of bad things. We've done a lot of sinful things. We've made a lot of mistakes, and maybe we're still dealing with the consequences of those things. Perhaps we were sinned against. Bad things were done to us, and, and we're still dealing with the consequences of those sinful actions. Perhaps we understand intellectually, mentally, we understand that God has forgiven us. And perhaps we've forgiven others by faith. But sometimes the memories of those sins are still chains that hold us back from pressing on toward the goal. Or maybe we look back with a high-minded satisfaction at our spiritual achievements, our great churchiness, our biblical knowledge, our good works, all the things that we've done that are so good and all good in and of themselves. But perhaps the glow of that goodness blinds us to spiritual stagnation and laziness that keeps us from growing in the faith. And the worst thing we could do in either case is compare ourselves with others. On the one hand, if we're still chained to past sins, allowing regrets to blot God's grace in our lives, we may tend to beat ourselves up comparing ourselves to other Christians who are doing oh so well. On the other hand, if we're blinded by self-serving satisfaction in our past goodness, our pride, thankful though we may be for those good things, we may develop a spiritual smugness comparing ourselves to other Christians who are just not doing that well. In the first case, we end up with low self-esteem. In the second case, we end up with high self-esteem. In both cases, the focus is on self. So what's the solution? Remembering to forget what lies behind. Then focusing on Christ, who we are in him, what he's done for us, moving forward in Christ's esteem, becoming more like him on our way to becoming fully like him in his humanity. Look at what Paul does here, the, the second element of that one thing he does. Secure in the present reality of being owned by Christ, 
Secure the promise of seeing and being like Christ at the resurrection of the dead. What does he do? Paul then strains forward to what lies ahead. He presses on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In one sense, the goal and the prize are the same thing, for they're intimately connected. The goal is the resurrection from the dead, or for those who are still around at the second coming, being changed in the twinkling of the eye, as it says according in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So the goal is the resurrection from the dead. The prize is the subsequent culmination, completion of our salvation, conformity to Christ, full fellowship in and with Christ, full sanctified perfection in our humanity like him. Jesus Christ, therefore, is both the means and the end of the call of God. Can you sense Paul's focus here? Can you sense his excitement about growth in this life? His anticipation about what will happen when he meets Christ face to face? He refuses to dwell on, hang on, be prisoner of, or even glory in the past. That's done with. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. It's served its purpose. And now he presses on with his eyes focused on the prize of being like Jesus. And then he concludes the passage here with a brief word about the cheering section in this spiritual race, verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Well, first, Paul himself cheers on, encourages those who are mature, some translations say perfect, mature, perfect in Christ, encourages them to think this way. That is, those of you who understand who you are in Christ and that Christ is himself both the means and the end, the goal of life, well, forget what lies behind and just press on. Second, he tells those who may think otherwise, who don't quite yet get it, that's okay. God himself will reveal it all to them also, and they will be able soon to forget what lies behind and press on. As we say sometimes, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much he isn't going to leave you just the way you are. God himself is the ultimate encourager in life. And then finally, Paul encourages the Philippians to hold true to what we've attained. Well, he just said that he has not already obtained this and that he did not consider that I've made it my own. So what's he referring to? What's he talking about? Well, a couple of things. Belonging to Christ, being in Christ, having the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is circling back to the foundation of that hot pursuit the reality of being in Christ, who is the foundation, the means, the end of God's call. Hang on to that. That's yours. You're not going to lose it. But he's also referring to the maturity the Christian has already attained, wherever they are in that walk. Hang on to that. Live up to it. Be faithful where you are and press forward from wherever you are in the race. Now, you notice here that Paul uses athletic running metaphors, and he tends to do that a lot in his writings. And, you know, speaking of athletics, you, you could probably tell by looking at me that I was once a stud athlete. And uh, Sandy's rolling her eyes. 
And, and the rest of you laughed. But, you know, one thing, I, I hate running. I, I just, I, it's, I don't like running. The idea of running, running a marathon, it's just excruciatingly boring to me. I don't like running. Well, as some of you may know, I, I grew up as a missionary kid in Chile. Most of my schooling was in a K through 12, all boys school that was modeled after the British system. We played a lot of soccer, the real football, played a lot of rugby. And every now and then, we'd be involved in track and field. And my one moment of athletic glory was in track and field. And uh, what, what would happen is we'd occasionally be able to get into competition, have meets with other schools, the same boys' schools, British schools. So one time when I was in sixth grade, my PE teacher, the coach, he asked me if I wanted to compete in the 600-meter race, once and a half around the track. I said, sure. So there was two of us, me and another schoolmate, and this other guy was much faster than I was. I mean, he beat me every time in practice. So a few days before we travel to go to the track meet, the coach takes us aside and said, okay, here's the plan. Here's the strategy. He said, when the gun goes off, he looked at my schoolmate and says, I want you to get into third place, pace yourself there for most of the race, and when we come into the last turn, I want you to sprint ahead and come in first. All right. He looked at me and said, now when the gun goes off, I want you to get into fifth place, pace yourself there, and when we come to the last turn of the race, I want you to sprint ahead and come in third. Okay, not a problem. So we go to the track meet. Our time comes up. The gun goes off. Man, we take off. I take off. I'm doing my thing. I'm in fifth place. I'm huffing and puffing at about halfway through the race. And, you know, I look up and I notice, man, the guy's first and second place. They're way ahead. There's no way anybody's going to catch them. Third and fourth are right in front of me. Okay, I'm right where I need to be. And, and my classmate, my schoolmate, oh, my goodness, he's last place and he's dying. Forget the strategy. It's out the window. So what did I do? Sixth grade, intuitively, I knew I can't worry about what's going on back there. <laughs> I need to follow the directions, do what my coach said, follow the plan. So I dug deep, you know, I focused on the goal, on the prize, on the finish line, on the race, looked forward, and just kept huffing and puffing. And I'm going and I'm getting closer to those guys that are in third and fourth place. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see and I hear my coach running by, and he's yelling and encouraging me, come on, you're doing great, go, 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 go. And then I notice there's some of my classmates yelling and screaming. And then I notice that even the junior high and high school kids, or guys are yelling and screaming for me, calling out my name. I didn't even know they knew my name. And coming up towards the last turn. And I dig deep, and I'm Yet I'm just puffing and puffing, and I move from fifth into fourth place, and come around that last turn, see the finish line, the goal, and I mean, they're yelling, the coach is yelling, the classmates are yelling, everybody's yelling, and I just dig as deep as I can, and I sprint past that guy and come into glorious third place. Coach, schoolmates, junior high kids, High school guys come up, congratulate me, pat me on the back. Glorious athletic achievement, and it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> now, this passage from Philippians, Paul's use of athletic images, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from my athletic endeavors? Well, some applications here that we can perhaps make. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, born again to new life in him, 
You can look forward to the goal of the resurrection of the body and become like him in full, true humanity. That is, by the way, the ultimate Christian hope. It's not simply, as we often say, well, believe in Jesus, accept Jesus in your heart, and you'll go to heaven when you die. That's true, but it's incomplete. Our ultimate hope and destiny is in resurrected eternity in full conformity to the image of Christ in the new recreated earth. At the same time, we're currently on a we're currently sojourners in this race during this not yet time. The challenge, the encouragement are to press on. Listen to the coach. Listen to his instructions. Holy Spirit, the Bible. Stay focused on the goal and look forward to that glorious prize. And during this time, we stay focused by overcoming any hindrance of the past that may trip us up or hold us back. The negative consequences of our past are real, and they may be serious, but they can be left behind and even forgotten in and by the grace of Jesus Christ. But we also need to be aware of the positive things of the past that may become a hindrance. We don't rest on our laurels, individually or even as a church. I've heard individuals say sometimes, well, you know, I've done my part. I'm through. I'm just going to rest and wait till Jesus comes or until I go and meet him. There's never a time to quit. I've worked with churches for over 30 years, and I've noticed that sometimes the biggest obstacle to change and growth is a glorious, successful past. And we can't let that happen here. Finally, this race is not one we can or should run by ourselves. We're part of a team. We need each other to cheer us on. We need to cheer others on. I need you. And that can only happen by being part, part of, involved in the body of Christ, the local church, particularly in a small group. So hold on to what you've already attained. Your status and security in Christ it's sanctified maturity. The Holy Spirit is working in you. And if you're not there yet, if you have not attained that union with Christ, if you don't have that personal relationship with Christ as Savior, as Lord, today is the time to take care of that. As we sing, as we pray, Matt will be down here. Others will be down here. And if you need to come down here and talk to them about what does it mean to be unified and be in union with Christ and to be able to look forward to that prize, to that goal. You come and you talk to him. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the fact that Jesus is himself the means to the prize, the prize being like him, that resurrected body and becoming like him in the new heavens and new earth. We thank you so much for that. And in the meantime, Lord, we Pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of us moment by moment, chipping away at the rough edges, convicting us when we need to be convicted, encouraging us when we need to be encouraged, encouraging us through that race of life to become more like Jesus. In his name we pray.